Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And let me read the word together with you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the new, you've got the Old Testament the New Testament. When you get to the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you have Acts and you have Romans and you have First and Second Corinthians and you have Galatians. If you get to Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians, you've gone too far. To stop at Galatians, then there are large numbers in the chapters that, that mark the chapters, chapter 4, and there are small numbers that mark the verses. We're in chapter 4 of Galatians, starting in verse 1. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless your word as we examine it this morning, as it examines us, that we would be a people who do not run after self-justification through the elementary principles of this world, but Father, that we would be a people who cling to Jesus as our justification, that you would root out all of the self-righteousness and attempts on our own part to justify ourselves, attempts to add anything to Jesus as our hope or as our salvation, as our righteousness. You'd root that out, and we would recognize that Jesus alone is our hope and our righteousness. That you would be honored, that your son would be exalted, that we would know that our greatest privilege is, is, is to know God, or, or rather to be known by God. Thank, thank you for your grace to us. Pray that we would understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, during uh, this time of year, you know, that when when you have the Christmas season, I don't know if you guys are all aware of this, especially younger people often aren't, but this time of year can actually be a very, very difficult time for people. We think of it as this joyous, happy time, but it can be very difficult for people. It can be difficult when people, when we're in tough economic times, or even when your own personal household is in tough economic times. It can be difficult when you're suffering from poor health or disease of some sort. It can be difficult when your marriage has failed or is in the midst of failing. It can be difficult when you have rebellious children. And they don't have to be all that rebellious, you know, mom and dad. They just have to be rebellious enough to make it difficult for you this time of year. It can be difficult when we fall into um, some sort of major destructive sin. And believers do that, incidentally. During this time of year, when that kind of stuff happens, Christmas can be particularly difficult. Why? Because we start reflecting, right? It's a time of the year when we reflect. And then we start to feel bad. Why? Because in some way, we look to find our justification. 
in some way we are looking to find our justification. In other words, our standing before God or our identity. We're looking to find those in some way in our successes, not in our failures. We're looking to find them in some way in our law-keeping or our doing of good, not in our disobedience. We're looking for it in some way maybe in how we're better off than others, not in how we're worse off than others. And really, we do this because we are relentless self-justifiers. What do I mean by that? We are relentlessly trying to uphold ourselves as worthy of something in some way. Pursuing our own self-righteousness, our own justification. We relentlessly self-justify. And there's at least two types. Now, I mean, there's all kinds of nuances, and I could probably list out a bunch, but I didn't come to preach on that this morning. Just going to give you the two major types of self-justifiers, right? Here's, here's the first type. There's the type that say, I think I am better than, this is how we live, how we justify ourselves. I am better than dot, 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 whoever it is, fill in the blank. Now, we, we never really come out and say it exactly that way. Here's how it looks instead. We see somebody do something that we think is abhorrent or wrong, and we say, I can't believe that person would do that. I would never do that. Now, now here's the question. Why does someone else's sin or failure elicit from you a statement, a positive statement about yourself? What does that tell you about the condition of your heart? That person fell into sin. I would never do that. We're not talking about you. That person sinned, but we run quickly to the fact that we would never do it because in some way, our heart is looking for a way to self-justify. Well, I know I have all kinds of bad things with me, but I just saw that person do that. I'd never do that, so somehow I've lifted myself up a bit. There's another type. I'm no good. This is the other type. I'm no good, and therefore I'm going to guilt myself to death. I'm a complete failure. I'm totally unworthy, and I will guilt myself, and I will participate in religious observance to the hilt out of guilt because somehow I think if I guilt myself enough, I'll be justified. In other words, these are the people who essentially stop at Moses, right? They stop at the law. They never get to Jesus. Neither one of these groups do get to Jesus, which is what we're going to talk about today, or maybe they get there somewhat, but they're always, we're always clinging on to something else. I'm either exalting myself or I'm diminishing myself, but either way, in some way, I think that through one of those two things, I can accrue some sort of credit with God. And Paul thoroughly attacks this idea of self-justification in Galatians. Thoroughly attacks it in this. If I could give you a title for this uh, sermon, it'd be How Christmas Ought to Kill Self-Justification. Right? How Christmas Kills Self-Justification. Because Paul lays out that in the fullness of time, Jesus came, right? Born of a woman, born under the law. He came, and he came to do something for us, to bring us justification. Not to help us justify ourselves, but to save us from our own sinfulness. Here's the context of Galatians, in case you're not very familiar with it. Galatia was a church that Paul had planted. Paul planted this church. He was writing them a letter. It's the only letter that Paul writes... Only letter Paul writes where he doesn't start off with commendations. In other words, he doesn't start off the letter saying, here are all the ways in which I commend you and I thank God for you. It's the only letter which, probably also the earliest letter written in the New Testament. 
And Paul writes this letter to the church at Galatia. And what's happened in Galatia is you have a mixture of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians are all those who are non-Jews. And what's occurred is those who are professing Jews, who are also professing to be Christians, there was a group of them, the Jewish people who were confessing Christians, there was a, a group of them who became called the Judaizers. In other words, what they were doing, what this group of professing Jewish Christians were doing, was they were saying, Jesus is good. We believe in Jesus. We believe in God. We believe he died on the cross for our sins. We believe he rose from the dead. But that's not enough. You've got to add something to it. Now, he might be enough to get in the front door, but he isn't enough to finish the job. We've got to finish the job through our own good doing, our own well-doing. And what would that be? That'd be things like circumcision, obeying the Jewish laws, following the specific Jewish calendar. They were adding to it. And this problem became so bad that the Judaizers were essentially saying, anybody who hangs around with those Gentile Christians who aren't getting circumcised, aren't keeping the law, you're hanging around with, you know, sort of sub-Christian people. We're not even sure, they're, we're pretty sure they're not even saved. You're hanging out with those people. And it got so bad that the apostle Peter and Barnabas, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and Peter, the apostle, when they came to Galatia, they were hanging out with the Judaizers, and avoiding the Gentile Christians because of the personal pressure to not want to be around with those guys who don't, they don't pursue holiness. They're not really saved. Galatians chapter two will give you a little bit of this context because Paul writes to deal with this issue. In Galatians two, we'll give you a little of the context. Look at Galatians chapter two, verse 11. We're gonna flip around this book, but here, here's what happens. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, in other words, they'd come from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. In other words, we're not naturally pagans. Yet we know that a person is not justified, did you hear this? They're not declared righteous, they're not forgiven for their sins by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Hear that? No one. In their minds, in the Judaizers' mind, trusting in Jesus wasn't enough. More was needed. Good works in various traditions needed to be added to Jesus. And, and the true gospel math is this, and I've told you guys this the last few weeks. The true gospel math is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation or justification. Jesus plus nothing. And these guys wanted to add something. They wanted Jesus plus something. And once you 
add something to Jesus, you no longer have the gospel. Hear that? You don't have a slightly modified gospel. You don't have the gospel at all. Lest I confuse you, I don't want you to think that Paul's point in Galatians, I don't want you to think that Paul's point in Galatians is that good works aren't necessary to the Christian life. He's not saying that. What he's saying is they're not a necessary condition to salvation or justification. You hear that? They're not a necessary condition or prerequisite to justification. He's not saying that they're not a necessary consequence. They are a necessary consequence or result of justification. They're not a necessary condition or prerequisite. You understand the distinction? Not a necessary condition or prerequisite. A necessary result or consequence. That's what good works are. When someone believes the gospel, they're given new life by, indwelt by, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, they will necessarily bear fruit as a result, right? Not as a requirement to get in. As a result, Paul actually addresses this in Galatians 5. He says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, if you have the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, once we belong to Christ, the flesh has been crucified, we've been empowered by, and dwelt by, filled by the Holy Spirit, and we will bear fruit. That'll happen. But we don't bear fruit to somehow receive justification from God, to be forgiven for our sins. We're not bearing fruit to somehow meet some condition so that we can now be a child of God. We bear fruit as a consequence, as a result of what God has already done. But our problem is that we actually tend to slip into the Judaizing tendency. I don't know if you guys recognize that. You might say, you know, I'm totally with you. I agree 100%. I am thanking God I do not have any Judaizing tendency in my life. But the fact is, is we tend to slip in there. Because we all will say, sure we'll say, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's Jesus plus nothing. Amen. End of sermon. You're preaching to the choir. Let's just go home. But we go on to try to live the Christian life. I want you to hear this. We say, that's great, that's how I'm saved, but now I'm going to go on and try to live the Christian life as if the rest of it depends on me. Hear that? I start with Jesus, but I'm going to try to live the rest of my Christian life as if the rest of it depends on me. We have functional saviors. Do you know what I mean by functional saviors? We know Jesus is our savior, but in many ways, there are other things in our lives that function like saviors for us. For example, my reputation can function like a savior for me. Or my success. Or how my children turn out. You know, a lot of young moms, when they start to see their children growing up, they start to feel condemned, and maybe I'm not a good Christian woman, and maybe, I mean, what must God think of me because my children aren't turning out exactly how I thought they would. In some way, their children and how they turn out are becoming a functional savior for them. Or my marriage, how strong my marriage is, or how well my career's going. Or for pastors, one of the big struggles and missionaries, it becomes my ministry, becomes my functional savior. So that one of my greatest heroes of the faith, don't you hear this? One of my greatest heroes of the faith, 
a man who gave his life to see a people group who'd never heard the gospel before believe, fell into sin after doing that, and struggled with, where's my standing before God? You know why? Because in some way, he had been caught up with the idea that this great work he did for God was his justification. We do it all the time. My religious observation becomes my justification. My personal holiness often becomes my functional savior. Whatever it is, these things become functional saviors. So how does it look? Well, if I lose my career, or I fall into sin, or I lose my reputation, or my marriage falls apart, or I lose my ministry, or my children become rebellious, I become devastated. That's how it looks. And I feel lost as a person. Who am I anymore? My identity is gone. And I even begin to question, was I ever even saved? Why? Because in some way I've smuggled in an addition to Jesus as my righteousness. I have a functional savior. Functionally, my math, although my theology of the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation or justification, functionally, my real math that's going on in my life and my heart is Jesus plus something equals justification. What is it? Plus having a successful marriage, plus having a successful career, plus having a good reputation, plus having my children turn out the way I hoped they would, plus never falling into that kind of gross sin that I said I would never do. Those have become my functional savior. Paul addresses this sort of adding on to, thinking we live the Christian life on our own, thinking we just start with Jesus and then do our own thing in Galatians 3. Look at Galatians 3, chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, did you bring anything to the table? You never did. Are you so foolish, verse 3, Having begun by the Spirit, having begun by this work that God has done through Christ, applying it to your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, have you begun there? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, God made a promise to Abraham. And how do you become a son of Abraham, a receiver of that promise? Through faith. Because God kept the promise. God didn't keep the beginning of the promise, and now you finish the keeping of the promise. God kept the whole promise. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. But you know what? We, this smuggling of, of additions into Jesus is such an epidemic in the church um, that we even smuggle in our faith. Do you, know, do you know what I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Yes, justification in Jesus comes through faith. But here's how we smuggle it in. We make our faith into a virtue. Make it into a virtue. It's not a gift of God's grace to us. It's a virtue. Faith now is a virtue that God rewards. And I talk about how much faith I have. And I, I start wondering if I have enough faith to get the blessings of God. 
rather than understanding that faith is a gift through which I receive grace. Faith is looking to Jesus and away from me. It's looking to Jesus alone. That's what faith is. Faith is not a virtue that God rewards. Faith is me recognizing I have no virtue for God to reward. That Jesus is the one who has the virtue God rewards. And we must relentlessly make sure that we're focused on Jesus alone as our our hope and our righteousness. Anything short, I want you to hear this, anything short of that is a false gospel. Anything short is a false gospel. And we may say, theologically, I'm believing the true gospel, but functionally, our hearts are clinging to a false gospel. And Paul takes this deadly seriously. Well, not seriously, he takes it, look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Verse 6, because remember, the Judaizers are not denying that you need faith in Jesus. They're not denying any essential truths of Christianity. They're adding. Look what Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, there is no other good news, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort Listen to what they want to do. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, damned. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And Paul goes on almost as if to take a shot at Peter who's looking for his justification and the approval of men and says, for I am, now, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If you add to Jesus for salvation, Paul says, let you be accursed. Hear that? He takes it deadly seriously. Paul's so serious that he actually speaks to the Judaizers in a way that's actually shocking to us. You know, I mean, oftentimes I get flack because people say, hey, you know, you said this thing and it was really controversial and shocking, right? And I, I, I think you ought to be careful, you know, with what you say. Let me tell you, what, Paul says stuff that I would never say. And once I hit his watermark, then come criticize me, okay? But <laughs> until then, leave me a little bit alone, right? But no, here, here's the thing. Paul says stuff that, that blows me away. Here's what he tells you guys. You want, to circumc- you want to add circumcision to Jesus? You want to add that? Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. He tells them in verse 7, he's talking to the Galatians about how they were running well. They were, they were keeping in line with the truth of the gospel. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. In other words, whoever these people are that are adding to Jesus, I pray that God will deal with them. But look what he goes on to say. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In other words, I'm being persecuted because I'm telling the Jews they shouldn't think that that justifies them anymore, and they're upset about it. In that case, the offense of the cross would be, has been removed. But look what he says. I wish those who unsettle you, those who preach circumcision, would go all the way and emasculate themselves. 
who says, the Judaizers, you want to preach circumcision? I hope you go all the way and just cut it right off. That's how seriously Paul takes this. Takes it deadly seriously. You might say, I believe in Jesus, but I still feel enslaved to do good works. I believe in him, but I still feel enslaved to do good works in order to somehow be sure that I'm really saved. That's what Paul's dealing with throughout the book of Galatians. Paul's not dealing with people who are denying the need for Jesus. I want to be clear about this. He is not dealing with people in the Galatians who are denying the need for Jesus. He's dealing with people who are trying to add to faith in Jesus for our standing with God. He's not even dealing with people who are saying holiness is a good thing for the Christian. Paul agrees with that. Look at Galatians 5. His point is, your personal holiness does not add to your standing with God. So I want to look at, especially Galatians 4, 1 through 11, because that was just the introduction. Especially Galatians 4, and I will try to land quick. 4, 1 through 11. And I want to show you three arguments Paul makes. Three arguments Paul makes that demonstrate that we don't justify ourselves that our righteousness is not found in us, that we don't even add to it, that it's all of grace, all a work of God. First, here's the first one. We could never justify ourselves through moral living. First one. We could never, man could never justify himself through moral living. Old Testament saints were not saved by keeping the law. They were always saved by faith in Christ. Always. Looking forward to the promise, I know, we're looking back at the fulfillment, but always. No man has ever saved himself or justified himself through moral living. Look at what he says here in chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, he's talking about those who are the heirs of Abraham's promise, as long as he is a child, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in Slave to the elementary principles of the world. What, what's he saying here? He's talking about this idea of an inheritor, um, an inheritance paradigm that happened in, in the first century. And here's the way inheritance happened. You would be a child, if your parents left you an inheritance, let's say they died and left you an inheritance, you would be placed under guardians. Really almost like jailers in some sense. And you would be placed under tutors, okay? Unfortunately, the way we translate tutor makes it sound like really positive, right? Well, you have these nice tutors who come to your house and care for you and these guardians who oversee the estate and, and then when you get older, you're going to get it all. And Aren't these wonderful, generous people? That's not Paul's point. In Galatians 3 and through Galatians 4, the tutor, if you look at the way this word is used oftentimes and in the first century and throughout the New Testament, this is a person who applies the rod to you. This isn't the father. This is a disciplinarian. This is a person who will beat you with the rod, that's the tutor. The guardian is the jailer, basically the one who keeps you in slavery. He makes sure that, well, yeah, the inheritance is yours. You're treated no different than a slave. Hear that? No different than a slave. That's how you're treated. Not treated by like a, like a, ch a son. No different than a slave. That's your state outside of faith in Christ. Hear that? That's your state outside of salvation through the promise God makes. You are treated like a slave. Moses 
is important because Moses, if you, if you look at the history, God makes a promise to Abraham. He then brings along Moses. Who is Moses? Moses is the man who brings the law. He's the mediator that brings the law. And you have to get to Moses if you're ever going to get to Christ because you need to know that you're damned, that you're condemned for your sin if, you un- if you're going to understand that you need salvation in Jesus. You need to know that. However, you can't stop at Moses. Moses' law was never meant to save. It's like the ABCs of religion. It's like, that's why he says you're like a child. You're not like a full-grown adult or a son. You're like a child. You're basically in kindergarten learning your ABCs with Moses. But you're not a son. You haven't inherited anything yet. To think that Moses is the end of the Christian religion, that the law-keeping is the end of the Christian faith, to think that somehow Christianity is summed up in thou shalt and thou shalt not is to fall into a satanic and damning religion. Do you hear that? Now, Paul isn't saying the law is bad, but what Paul is saying when he says in verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, if you look down at Verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. What's he talking about? But now you've come, what not gods are you enslaved to? Rather, now you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? See the same phrase there. How can you turn back to them? What were they? You observed days and months and seasons and years. In other words, You've been freed from thinking that somehow the law saves you. Why would you now return to the law for your justification? When you start making Moses the end of the Christian faith, when you start making thou shalt and thou shalt not the summary of Christianity, you are caught up in idolatry. Because you think that somehow you fulfill the promise. And what Paul's relentless about in Galatians 3 is to demonstrate that, yes, Moses came along, but he did not annul the promise God made to Abraham. He didn't do that. God made a promise to Abraham. You will be my people. I will be your God, and I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. Moses comes along to show us that we need him to do it. Not to show us we can now do it. And Jesus demonstrates that God did it. So there's only two religious systems in the world, right? Two. There's this basic religion of Moses, which is basically, if I want to be in good standing with God, God says to me, thou shalt and thou shalt not. That's how I get in good standing with him. And basically every religion in the world agrees to that. They basically all have a moral code. But it'd be, be a good person. Every religion in the world. Some kind of moral code basically comes down to its base to be very similar to the law of Moses, which essentially says, be a good person, and that's how you're going to be in good stead with God. Or the gods, or whatever they happen to believe. Or the universe, which is God, if you're in pantheism. The other religious system is the religion of Jesus and of Abraham. Which is God graciously saying, I will, I will, I will. That's how you become my children. Not you shall, you shall, you shall. John Wesley, who was known as one of the leaders of the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening in American history, um, prior to actually being the nation of the United States, 
led an incredible revival here. It was one of the three guys who did, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and John Wesley. They were out of England. John Wesley was known because he was part of uh, a club of basically guys who got together, sort of a holy gathering. They actually called it collegius pietatus, which means pious gatherings or holy gatherings. And they would get together in England around Oxford, and they would get together, and they would pray for hours together and read the Bible, and, and they pursued holiness. But they weren't saved. They weren't saved. They practiced the religion of Christianity, but they weren't saved. They were actually practicing Moses plus Jesus. Hear that? So they said, we're going to be good people. Jesus wants us to be good people. And after God gave him new life, and he believed in Christ for the first time, Wesley was reflecting about his previous faith. And here's what he said. I had even then the faith of a servant, though not the faith of a son. Hear the distinction there? I had the faith of a servant, though not the faith of a son. And it, I would, would ask you, is your faith in Christ that of a servant or that of a son? Because the difference is all important. If it's that of a servant, you are stopping with Moses. If it's that of a son, you understand that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the promise for you. And this is really what Paul's getting at. You need to understand that if you believe in Christ, you're a son. You're no longer a slave. You aren't jumping through hoops in some attempt to please God and be found righteous. To practice this kind of religion is to return to being a child. It's to return to spiritual slavery. And that's what Paul is warning the church about. You understood that you became a son through Christ. Now why are you running back to that old slave master? Why are you trying to justify yourself through the law again? Don't go back to being a child. You're an adult. You're a full-grown adult. Don't re-enroll in kindergarten. And that's what Christmas drives home. It drives home the fact that God sent his son so that God can keep his promise of being our God and us of being his people. It drives home. God kept the promise, not us. And that leads to my second point. God justifies us. Not only do we not justify ourselves, but God never could. God justifies us through sending Jesus. Look at verse four. But, see we were enslaved to elementary principles of the world, but verse four, but, when the fullness of time had come. In other words, God had promised to one day, Genesis 3.15, to send, to send the Redeemer, the man who would crush the serpent, who would die doing so, the seed of Abraham, who would fulfill all God's promises. He promised to send him. And when the fullness of time had come, when that day which God appointed to send Jesus, that day that we celebrate every year at Christmas, the day of Jesus' birth, when the fullness of time had come, God God sent forth his son. It doesn't say when the fullness of time had come, man finally got his act together. It's not what it says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of woman. In other words, he's God's son, divine. Born of woman. He's a man. Born under the law. In other words, the lawgiver became the law keeper in our place. We never kept the law of Moses perfectly, so he came and did it for us. Born under the law to redeem those, to purchase us back who were under the law, to save us, so that we, to get us out of slavery. Remember he said we were in slavery to law? 
Now he's redeeming us from slavery. He's purchasing us out of slavery to law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Hear that? So that he came into this. Jesus came so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Dad. You are no longer a slave. You no longer are a servant of the law. You are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you hear that? Jesus comes to secure our salvation, and the Holy Spirit comes to apply it to us so that we experience it, so that we know it's ours. It's, it's like this. Um, my son knows he's my son, right? He knows he's my son. But the Holy Spirit sort of acts like this. He knows my son because he was born of my wife. He's in my family. I call him my son. Just like you're born of God through Christ, God has called you a son. You have this objective declaration that through Jesus, faith in him, you're united to Christ and you're his son. What is the Holy Spirit's role? It's like this. It's like me telling my son, man, you're my son. I love you. I'm proud of you. Why, dad? Because you're my son. He already knows he's my son. But why am I whispering into my, his ear, you're my son? So the Holy Spirit is essentially doing, right? He's reconfirming in our hearts that we are God's sons and daughters. That's what he's doing. Jesus makes us the son of God. It's all a work of God. And the Holy Spirit is applying it to us and whispering into our ears so that we experience the fact that we're sons. We're his children. We don't run from a cool, cruel taskmaster. We don't serve under some guardian or tutor who applies the rod to us while he keeps us in servitude to the law. We're the children of the Father in Christ. Third, we should not return, this last third point, we should not return to moral living. We should not return to moral living as our justification by trying to add something to Jesus. Do you hear that? We never could justify ourselves. Jesus does the justifying, so we shouldn't return to trying to justify ourselves. It's pretty repetitive, I know. But that's Paul's point. Paul's laying out the doctrine, and now he's going to come back as a pastor and appeal to them. Please, don't return to that. Look at verse 8. Formerly, here's Paul the pastor. Formerly, when you did not know God... You didn't even know him. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You were trying to justify yourself. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, which is an important emphasis, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Do you hear pain here? Don't go back to trying to justify yourself by the law. Paul isn't saying the law is bad. The law is holy, righteous, and good. He tells us that in Romans 7. The law has a purpose, though. Its purpose is to expose your need for God to save you. Hear that? Its purpose isn't for you to find a way to save yourself. And it then becomes a good guide for the children of God who as children recognize what pleases our Father and so we want to honor him and live by it, but not because somehow we think it'll get us adopted. 
Think of the way we often see God. We don't see him like a father who's adopted children and now we want to please our father. We see him like this cruel taskmaster who's given us a law that he can beat us over the head with. It's not the point. I, if, if I adopt a child, even as a human dad, if I adopted a child, I would then give the child house rules. I love you. You're my son now. Here are the house rules. Here are the ways best to live. They'll please us as your parents and they'll be good for you. Follow these things. When the child disobeys, I discipline the child, but I don't discipline the child with the threat of, if you don't knock it off, I'm going to throw you out and you have to find some new parents. I don't do that as a human father. Why in the world do we think that a perfectly holy, righteous God would do that as father? He adopts us as his children. He holds us to house rules for our good and his glory, but never so that we can, because on threat that we might lose our adoption or be kicked out of the family. It's always Jesus plus nothing. Always. That's what Paul is driving home. We should never return to the state when we didn't know God as we were committing idolatry to try to justify ourselves. I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue holiness. I'm saying we should never think of our pursuit of holiness as our standing before God. We should never hear the words coming out of our mouth, well, I would never do that. As if somehow I'm going to boost myself up. The words coming out of our mouth, by the grace of God, I'm not right where they are right now. And that's it, by the grace of God. And I have compassion for them and want to help them see that this isn't helpful to their lives. That this isn't pleasing God. Our pursuit of holiness is not how God's promised to be our God and for us to be his people is kept. Our pursuit of godliness is not what secures our adoptions as sons and gives us the right to call God our Father. It is simply, our pursuit of holiness in God is simply a desire to please the Father because he is our dad. Because he has saved us. Because we're his people. Not so we can bring that state of affairs about. And now it may seem mature to have a highly developed religious system of traditions you keep or laws you obey. It may seem mature. But if you're doing so for your justification before God, then you're not becoming more mature. You're going back to elementary school and you're denying the gospel. That's why the Protestant Reformation occurred. You know that? It wasn't like the Roman Catholic Church has always been wicked and evil. It wasn't like they always had everything wrong and thank God Martin Luther came along. The Roman Catholic Church had pretty much for most of history most of everything right. When Luther came along, the Roman Catholic Church had veered from its previous teaching and had begun to add to, had begun to add to Jesus something. Most of everything they had was right. The problem was what they started to add. They never deny the need for Jesus, still don't deny the need for Jesus. They add to it. They add to it. They have the first plank of justification, which is your baptism. The second plank of justification, which is your confession, penance, acts of contrition. And you must live as a good Catholic and believe in Jesus to be saved. They add. That's all. Everything else is right. It's the Galatian problem. It became Jesus plus something we do. And Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest and monk, simply wanted to reform the church and say, let's go back to what we were. Not abandon it. I still pray, you should still pray, that Rome will repent of her additions to Jesus for salvation. 
and the church will be reunified. We should still pray for it. But we can point fingers at Catholics all day and, and, and accomplish very little. You know why? Because we failed to see how we do the same thing. We think that they're the only ones who are doing this, but we begin to think our justification before God depends on us as well. I mean, how often do you stop at Moses and beat yourself up when you recognize you're a sinner and you start to question your salvation? You don't go all the way to Jesus and recognize you're a son. You do that? How often do you skip right over Moses and think belief in Jesus is just a new and easier law that I have to keep? So now I can live however I want because I kept that law. I went down an aisle, I prayed a prayer. Now I can live like a slave to sin. I can live like an idolater who doesn't know God because maybe I don't really know him because I just turned him into another law to keep. There were the 10 that God gave Moses and now there's the 11th that he gave us through Jesus, believe in him too. That one's easier because those other 10 ones were hard. So I've done that. Maybe I don't embrace the role of being a son and desire to walk with my father. Or maybe you don't do either of these things. Maybe you're more sophisticated like I am, right? More sophisticated. This is, this is a very, this is an insulting statement incidentally, not a compliment. Perhaps you're more sophisticated and your idolatry or your self-justification is much more nuanced, like mine is. I nuance it really well. See, I recognize that Jesus is my righteousness. I'm even preaching to you for it, about it for too long. And I stand, and I, I recognize that Jesus is my standing with God, and I walk happily with God. But when things go really wrong in my life, you ready? When things go really wrong in my life, I start crying out to God, what did I do to deserve this? Why has God abandoned me? Why have you abandoned me like this? And what does that question assume? What does it assume? It assumes that we see God like some close-fisted disciplinarian who's looking for a chance to smack us down. I'm not seeing him as my father who loves me and maybe disciplining me, but not because he's abandoned me, but precisely because he loves me. And if you're like me, you don't stop there. You take it a step further. This is how much more perverse my nuance becomes. You ready? Some of yours may as well. I take it a step further, and in my suffering, I start wondering why God has abandoned me, and then I recognize, well, he hasn't really abandoned me. He's doing it because he's a father who loves me and is disciplining me. So what a display of a lack of faith I'm showing. Why would God want to have anything to do with me? See how twisted that gets? I know the truth, so I'm displaying an obvious lack of faith. But this happens with the psalmist, doesn't it? Where have you gone, oh God? Why have you abandoned me? They ask it. It happens to faithful people. And here's where my weakness comes in. You ready? Here's where my self-justification comes in. Maybe some of yours does as well. When we start to think, when I start to feel in my heart, think that I am somehow above this kind of weakness, that I'm above it, I'm running headlong into thinking that my life is my justification. Hear that? Running headlong. When I see the psalmist doing that and go, I don't resonate with that at all. Or I see somebody else asking why and I'm thinking, don't you have faith in God? I'm starting to see myself as somehow above weakness. And here's the point, you're not above weakness. It shouldn't cause you despair when you start to suffer with weakness and faith. It shouldn't cause you to despair. 
Yes, repent. Yes, turn to God in faith. But no, not despair because all the saints of God do it. We're weak. That's why we need Jesus. That's what Christmas shouts out to us. It doesn't say to us, you shall and you shall not is how you become my sons and daughters. What it shouts out to us is God saying, I will, I will, I will. I will adopt you as my sons and daughters through what I will do in Jesus. And that's what God did. That's how Christmas should affect you. It should cause you to reflect on the fact that Jesus is your hope, Jesus is your righteousness, Jesus is your justification, and in him, in Christ, is your adoption as sons. He's the fulfillment of God's promise for you to be his people and for him to be your God. Not anything you do. Nothing. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people who flee our relentless pursuit of self-justification, who recognize our need for your Son. Over and over and over again, Father, we pray that we would look daily, not just during the Christmas season, but every day we would preach the gospel to ourselves, recognize that we need Jesus, and that because of Jesus, we are your children. That we would trust you as our Father, Father, we would not point the finger at others who we think somehow have missed the boat and we've gotten it as to somehow lift ourselves up. Nor, Father, would we cling to our guilt as somehow cleansing us, but we would recognize that Jesus alone and his blood cleanses us from our sins, that he is our righteousness, that we are your children, that we would worship you love you, and that we would relentlessly pursue killing self-justification in our lives. And Father, that we would take the gospel seriously and we would defend the gospel against all those who would add to it, regardless of the cost to our lives. For the sake of your precious name we pray, amen.